So I had passed the CPR portion of the test. I had passed the written portion of the test. I had the test passed the physical portion of the test, but I still had the rescue portion of the test to get my lifeguard certificate when I was in college. It was a semester-long course, and uh, we were at the very end of it, and I was feeling pretty confident. In fact, I had already lined up a job at uh, the YMCA on Pearson Road in Flint, uh, where I was going to be lifeguarding uh, that particular summer, and so I just had to pass this last portion of the test. Now, uh, the instructor of the course, she would invite um, former students that had taken it in the years prior to come back and be the rescue dummies, okay? Uh, there was three or four of them that were there, and uh, they basically you kind of drew numbers on who you were going to be paired up with to have them as your rescue dummy, and you had to go and do the rescue stuff. And So uh, the guy that I got, though, um, had a chip on his shoulder. Uh, he'd been a lifeguard for the last couple of years, and it was kind of like uh, he thought his role to like help you understand how hard lifeguarding can be, and so he made it almost impossible to rescue him. Uh, before he would get in the water, he would take a bottle of baby oil and pour it all over his body, head to toe. Then he would jump into the water, and uh, I happened to be the first guy that had to go and try to rescue him, the first person, and he kind of wanted to make a point out of me. Um, and so I jumped in, and you're supposed to like try to calm the person down, and he's pretending that he's drowning. Oh, I'm drowning. And he would do that, and then you swim up to him, and you're supposed to then swim to the back, and then you grab them over their shoulder, underneath their armpit, put them on your hip, and do the rescue carry to the side of the pool, okay, to safety. When you would get uh, close to him, though, he would start thrashing at you, trying to drown you, trying to pull you under. So you're supposed to keep talking to them, and if every time you come up to them, they keep trying to do that, then you're supposed to swim underneath them and come up from their back and grab them that way. But it's a pool. You can see exactly where somebody's at. So he would pretend he didn't see you, and then as soon as you came up, he'd turn real quick, and he'd try to drown you. Now, uh, the first minute or two, it's annoying, and then by three, four, five minutes in, you're exhausted, and you're trying to swim underneath, and you come up when you need air so bad to grab this guy and try to save him, and he pushes you down under again. I was going crazy. trying. I finally swam to the side, and I started yelling at him, knock it off, this isn't right, you got it, I'm yelling at the guy, and so eventually I passed, and that was all fine, but have you ever been in a pool, or swimming in the lake, and you're screwing around with your friends and, and you've been underwater for a while and you need to get up and get some air, but either something is holding you down or your friend tries to push you back down and your lungs are starting to scream like, if I don't get air, like, have you ever felt that before? I think secrets are like that for our soul. Uh, back in 2004, there was a guy, his name was uh, Frank Warren, and uh, he was doing uh, an art project and he called it post-secret. And so what he did, some of you guys maybe have even heard of this, is um, he gave out a whole bunch of postcards to just random strangers. And I don't know exactly, I mean, this is like pre-iPhone, pre-social media, except for, I think, MySpace. Uh, so I don't know how he got the word out, but he had a P.O. box um, that you could send anonymous, these anonymous postcards to with just a, your secret on it. 
He was hoping that he would get 365 because that's what he, he wanted to kind of create like this uh, art project that had like a secret for every day uh, for a year. Uh, over the, the last 15 years, he's gotten over a million postcards. These are a couple of the ones that he's gotten. I cut off my long, beautiful hair after I had an abortion 11 years ago. I've finally forgiven myself enough to let it grow back. My brother won't wipe his pee off the toilet seat, so I do, with his towel before he takes a bath. <laughs> I'm 41 years old. I've been bulimic for over 20 years. Anger, fear, self-loathing, narcissism, obsessed with food, vain, and bored. I want to be a whole person from the inside. Today was my last time. The car crash I miraculously survived was actually a suicide attempt. I still wish I was dead. There's something about secrets that just weigh us down. I think secrets are kind of like weights around the neck of our soul. And the reason that post-secret became such a powerful uh, kind of social experiment that was really unintended, in fact, it actually wound up spawning some different apps that are still available today that are literally just places where you can go and share secrets, is because all of us know that carrying secrets around is crushing to our souls. Confession is something that mankind has been doing since the dawn of time. It's necessary and needed. And it's 2019, right? Like it's a new year. We got all these new ideas of what we're going to do. I'm like not the guy who ever does uh, uh, New Year's resolution. All right, I just stopped my thing. But even this year, I was like, you know what? I want to try to do some things a little different. Like, I look back on the past year, I'm like, all right, you know, 2018, meh. But I want 2019 to be better. I want to do some things that I know are going to help me. And I even, like, actually got a little note out on, uh, on my Word. Does anybody still use Word besides me? Probably not, but I do. And so I went in and I typed out a couple of things that I want to try to do this year consistently. But when we come to 2019 as a church, I, I, I want us to have some resolutions. Last week, uh, Ryan taught and did a phenomenal job. He, he talked about uh, the word of the year that he wanted for us as a church. Does anybody remember what that word of the year is? Yeah, oh, impressive, yes. Well, give me. Anybody remember what it stands for? What is God inviting me into. Very good. What is God inviting me into? Now, whenever we hear that, a lot of times we assume that God is inviting me into like some way that I'm supposed to start serving him, right? That's kind of some of the um, illustrations that Ryan used, and that's probably true. God probably is going to, at some point this year, invite you into some ways that you can serve him. A lot of times we often think God might be inviting me into ways that I can serve others. Also probably true. But God, I think, is constantly inviting us into something. And that something that he's constantly inviting us into is a relationship with him. Like that's his deepest desire is to know you. Like actually like be a friend of yours. Like a lot of times I think we assume that God, um, it's easy at least for me, maybe this is just me and maybe it's not you, but I, I, I'm going to guess you're not a whole lot different than me. I, I look at God and I'm like, I know God loves me, right? Because God has to love me. Like, it's just it's who God is. 
God chooses to love me, that's great. But I always have a hard time wrestling with the idea, does God actually like me? Like, would God want to, like, hang, like, actually, like, be my friend? Because God knows me. You know what I'm saying? God knows me even better than I know myself. And a lot of times, I really wrestle with that. Uh, we, we have a, uh, uh, well, we have seven values as a church. We taught through them just this past fall. One of our values, though, is healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. Now, anytime that we talk about this value, most people tend to think that the most important word in that statement, the operative word in that statement, is grow. All right? But it's not. Uh, grow is actually probably the least uh, important word in that entire three-word sentence. The operative word is actually health, healthy. You see, growth is just simply a byproduct of health. And what we care about as a church is that we would be pursuing health. Do you know how we get healthy as a church, even as individuals? We get healthy through spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is that which helps us know God, interact with God, engage with God. It helps shape us to become more like Christ. Spiritual formation is not, though, self-help. It is getting yourself help. You like that? I like that. Come on, I came up with that. I was like, I was really proud of that. Spiritual formation is not self-help. It is getting yourself help. Look, none of us are able to become healthy all on our own. We need people to come alongside and help us, to, to encourage us, to talk with us, to give us advice, to, to, to push us along. When it comes to spiritual formation and spiritual health, we need a God who's going to engage with us and interact with us, that, that's going to reveal himself to us and reveal ourselves to him so that we can continually be formed more and more into the image of Christ. And friends, that's what we want for 2019. So this whole series, what we're diving into over the next six weeks, is actually a series on spiritual formation. We talk about filters, but that's really just this concept that we often apply filters to our lives so that people only see the stuff that we want them to see. Our goal is to remove those filters and put on the Jesus filter. Right? We're not supposed to be exactly who we are. We're supposed to be transforming. That, that's the point of becoming a Christian, of following Jesus, not to stay who you are. It's to be forgiven but then also to be transformed. And that's what Jesus wants to do, I believe, in our lives in 2019, not just individually, but as a community. And so we're going to talk about some different spiritual disciplines, right? Anytime that you want to get serious about your health, right, you've got to have some discipline in your life, okay? You can't say, I'm getting serious about my health, and then stop by Krispy Kreme every time the light's on, okay? I've tried. <laughs> it doesn't work. But the same thing is true when it comes to our spiritual lives. Spiritual disciplines, like a lot of times we think of discipline like, oh, no, it's a terrible thing, discipline so hard. Yeah, but that's what actually brings some of the most beautiful things into our lives. And so these next six weeks we're going to talk about, and this morning, one discipline that I think is incredibly difficult but so necessary is the discipline of confession. The reason I believe the discipline of confession is so necessary, beautiful, powerful, scary is because the discipline of confession causes us to continually remove and destroy our pride. And pride is one of those things like a weed. 
it's really hard to get rid of. It just keeps growing back, and the less you deal with it, the bigger it grows, the harder it is to remove. And confession is one of the ways that we fight against that very thing. The discipline of confession. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to James chapter 5. We're going to look at a couple of passages today. But James 5 has a gem that's dropped into the middle of a passage on prayer. So the chunk we're going to read in just a minute, just because I want you to have the context, is actually uh, all about prayer. And then James drops this little gem in. Let's read together chapter 5, verse 13. Oh, if anybody needs a Bible, you can just raise your hand. We've got a couple of folks, I'm sure somewhere, that will grab one. Thank you. Uh, grab one, bring it down for you, and you can follow along. It'll be up on the screen as well, but it's always good to read along and learn how to use our Bibles. All right, verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. There's a lot I'd love to talk about within that. We'll get a little bit of the context in a minute, but listen to verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I'm going to stop it right there. Now, uh, verse 16 is the little gem that James drops in. This chunk, I mean, the whole thing's like awesome. But, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins one to another. Now, uh, anytime you see a therefore in Scripture, you should always say, what's the therefore? Therefore. <laughs> you like that? That's good. Write that down. You can use that. What's the therefore, therefore? Uh, the therefore is connected, of course, then back to verse 15, which it's talking about the issue of sin, sickness, and healing. Uh, we live in a world where we understand what germs are, uh, what um, what, what's the other thing? You get germs and colds are not cold. What? Viruses. Thank you. I'm so smart when it comes to the science. I'm great at the science. Just like Jordan's great at the sports. <laughs> Look, we all know like stuff that they wouldn't have known back then. And so a lot of times I think we think to ourselves, well, okay, but we know what causes sicknesses. It's viruses and germs and but Scripture is actually pretty clear that it's not just viruses and germs. Yes, it is viruses and germs. But our sin actually affects, dare I even say infects, who we are. Uh, the reason that I trust Scripture is because I believe that we are holistic beings. I believe that our spiritual lives affect our emotional lives and our emotional lives affect our spiritual lives and our physical lives and everything is all together we are mind body and soul we are not bifurcated beings and so this actually matters uh, i want to read somebody because i think that it's helpful in getting a little bit of the context before we move more into the idea of confession just because i want to make sure that we're all on the same page of understanding what scripture is saying and what scripture is not saying in this particular passage so uh dr uh nystrom New Testament scholar says this. He says, The first sentence of verse 16, where James implies that sin can cause sickness, goes with verse 15. Okay, we just talked about that. This, he says, is sound New Testament teaching, fully in harmony with the remainder of the New Testament. In other words, 
The New Testament affirms throughout the New Testament that sometimes our sickness is connected to our sinfulness. Now, let me continue reading because I don't want us to get caught up to simply say every single time you get sick, it's because of a sin and it's God's way of judging you. All right, let's see what the scripture saying and what scripture not saying. Sorry. At Christmas Eve, I stepped on the microphone and literally ripped it in half. And I think we're still getting some issues there. So he continues and he says, but the New Testament does not teach that all sickness is the result of sin. John 9, 1 to 3. Or that all sickness, or excuse me, or that all sin causes sickness. Or that God always desires to remove maladies from affecting us. And then he cross-references 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, when Paul prayed for a particular struggle that he was having to be removed. You see, it's important that we understand what Scripture is saying and what Scripture is not saying. There are times when, because of our sin, we can actually fall uh, uh, ill. doesn't mean that that's every time. doesn't mean that every time you get a cold, it's because of sin. But I don't want to assume that what Scripture is saying is simply not real or true. I want to acknowledge it. I want to say that's something that we probably need to pay attention to because in our modern I, uh, kind of understanding, we often just simply go straight to science. And sometimes there might be other things that are playing a role. Now, uh, confession, though, of sins to other trustworthy individuals, okay, is obviously expected and something that's beneficial to us. Uh, we see this all throughout Scripture, but let me give you a smattering of verses. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, David, in Psalm 51, actually confesses his sin publicly. Now, we know that David's confession in Psalm 51 was actually connected to his, uh, his affair with Bathsheba. Uh, I don't know whether it was really an affair. Uh, David certainly was abusing his power. It's really hard to know from the text uh, how much Bathsheba was going along with this, but she was married. He knew what he was doing absolutely. And then when she is found to be pregnant, then he has her husband murdered. I mean, like, it doesn't matter what culture, what time, 4,000 years ago, 2019, like, that's scandalous, atrocious, awful. And David actually writes about it, and it becomes a part of Israel's worship. He's willing to confess his sin publicly. Now, it doesn't go into the nitty-gritty details, but he's also not shying away from what he has done. We also see in Proverbs 28, 13, it says, Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. You see, the discipline of confession, I believe, is so important today because of the time we live in. All right, We live in a time where uh, some call it post-truth, where it really doesn't even matter what happened. It matters more what you feel. We also live in a, a post-me-too era and a post-church-too era. Both of those things, the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, powerful, important, and necessary. They began to bring healing into our culture. A healing that needed to have happened years, decades ago. Where men, often men, sometimes women, 
but certainly those in power, were using the power that they had to abuse others. The Bible has always been against that. The church has always supposed to be against that. But even in churches, people in power were abusing the vulnerable. And we live on the other side of that. That was necessary, right? Because justice requires that at times there are consequences. And we don't want to downplay the fact that there ought to be consequences. There absolutely should. But I think what we have moved into in our desire for justice is we have lost the understanding of what it means to also offer grace. Grace is not the absence of consequences. There are still consequences that come with our decisions. That happens all the time. But I think it's a really scary day and age to actually confess anything. Right? You confess something, you get crucified. Especially if what you're confessing goes against whatever the culture is deeming as really important at the time. And if you're a follower of Jesus, look, I'm just telling you, there's stuff in Scripture that doesn't jive with where America wants you and I to behave or believe or think. Or, okay? Like, we, we, we get that, we understand that. And so when we find ourselves in those places, sometimes things are going to happen where we confess and we will get crucified. So what a lot of us tend to do is we tend to just kind of dismiss it away, shove it into the back, push it down, don't let anybody know. The problem with that is that secrets are like weights on the neck of your soul. They always wind up coming to destroy us. Uh, Grace and mercy is only found in confession. That does not remove consequences for our actions. But in grace and mercy, we actually find salvation and restoration and redemption. We actually find freedom. Look, one of the reasons that I'm a follower of Jesus and that I'm proud to pronounce my belief in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, why I'm not afraid to call myself a Christian is because Christianity is the only religion that I'm aware of that is grace-based. It's not about what I do to earn it somehow or the things that I have to, the certain things I have to believe or follow. It's simply accepting the gift of Jesus. Man, friends, I feel like grace is just, it's like rain in the desert. Have you guys been enjoying the sunshine we've had? In West Michigan, in the wintertime, in December and January. You know what I'm talking about, because like February is going to come, right? And we're going to have gone like three weeks without seeing the sun, like a long time, right? You're going to be angry, you know, and you don't even know why, all right? <laughs> That's a real thing. And then the sun's going to come out someday in February, and you know what you're going to do? It's going to be like 12 degrees outside. And you're going to walk out and just sit there like, oh, the sun, right? I think that's what grace is to our culture. I think that's what grace is to our souls. But grace is only found through the discipline of confession. Um, Confession has benefits across the board. It's interesting. I was reflecting on this because I'm about to tell you some stuff that I learned from psychologists. But then I was realizing I was using psychologists to try to prove to you in church that, that what the Bible says is true. And I'm like, that's kind of backwards. But, sorry, like, all right, that's the culture we live in. All right, like, we're not sure about the Bible, but the psychologists, like, they got it down. 
You ever read some stuff that psychologists say? It can be a little crazy. But all that to say, let me read this quote to you, okay? Uh, this is from a psychologist. His name is Dr. Aaron Murray Swank. Uh, he's been studying the practices of confession for a long time. Uh, he said this, uh, what his colleagues, he said, what my colleagues and I have discovered is that this compulsion to confession is profoundly healing physically, psychologically, and spiritually. Uh, I read some other uh, articles. Studies have been done that show that confession is good for mental and emotional health. Uh, they said that we always feel better about ourselves after confession, not necessarily the day after, but in the weeks and months to follow. Uh, we often become more trustworthy and credible to others. They said that people who are willing to make full confession versus those who only make partial confession actually uh, find themselves in way better mental health. In fact, those that make partial confession actually have more self-loathing in the weeks and months to come than those who completely lied about it, which I thought was very interesting. In confession, we become whole rather than separated into what I say I am and want to be versus what I actually do. See, we don't like that bifurcation in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our lives, where we say this is the kind of person we want to be good, kind, patient, right? Virtuous. And yet we do these other things over here that aren't. And confession actually allows us to drop these to become whole again. It was interesting. I, I wasn't even planning this, but I was watching just some videos on YouTube last night. And one of them was, you've ever seen these... Uh, where, where they'll like have a hidden camera and somebody will do something to see how people respond kind of a thing. They're always like gotchas. Like they'll tie a string to a bike and then leave it and see if somebody will try to steal it and then they'll ride off and then the string hits and they flip over the handlebars. Those aren't nice ones. This one uh, wasn't super nice either, uh, but a little bit better. This guy's talking on his phone and he's walking by people that are sitting on a park bench. He always tries to find somebody who's alone. Nobody else is around. And he says, I got the check. Yes, I got the check for 10 grand. It's in my pocket. I'm bringing it over right now. And he'll reach into his pocket to grab something and he'll make sure to accidentally drop the check out right by somebody and keep walking. And in one uh, time, the guy then bends down, picks it up, puts it in his pocket. Okay? And the dude then turns around and starts to walk back. He's like, hey, man, did, did you see... Did you see a check? I think I just dropped my check right over here. I just, I just had it, and, and it was in the guy's like, nah, man, I don't, like, I didn't see nothing. He's like, oh, really? Because it's for my mom. She's in the hospital, and I got to bring it to the hospital because they're, they're saying they're not going to be able to do the surgery she needs if, if she doesn't get the check, if, we don't, if I don't pay. And like, man, I, I, I could have swore it, like, just fell out. You didn't see anything around here. Nah, man, I didn't see nothing. And then the guy's like, yo, man, I know you picked up the check. We got a hidden camera up there. You, you got... And the guy's still like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I don't get no check. And then he says it again. There's a camera right over here. We saw you get the check. And the guy gets up. He's like, I don't know nothing, man. I don't know what you're talking about. He starts to walk away. He's like, and then the camera guy comes out. And he's like, all right, man, bet. Fine. And he goes to hand the check and then shoves him down the stairs and runs off. All right? That's one of them. The second one, guy's sitting on a bench. Same thing happens. I got the check. Da -da -da. I'm heading over to the hospital. Drops it out of his pocket. Dude looks around. Nobody's looking. He grabs it, puts it in his pocket. The guy comes back. Same thing. Hey, man, I think I dropped my check. Did you see it? The guy's like, uh, no, I was on my phone. I, I, I didn't see it. He's like, really? He's like, it's from my mom. She's in the hospital. Da, 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 da. 
The guy stands up. He's like, man, I'm sorry. I really needed the money, but I know your, your mom needs it more than I do. And Man, I'm so sorry. And he takes a check out and he gives it to the guy. And, and they wind up uh, hugging, which I'm like, that's kind of interesting. You know, dude who just lied to you about trying to steal your $10,000. Which I'm thinking to myself, what are you going to do with the check anyway? I mean, come on, like 10000 cash? Okay, maybe that. 10000 in a check? You ain't getting away with that anyway. So at any rate, the whole point of it was in confession, restoration of relationship begins. In confession, we get freed from the bondage of the things we've done. None of those guys were, went out that morning and thought to themselves, ooh, I, I'm going to try to steal something from someone. Right? Just like none of us go out and think, oh, I'm going to have this thought, or I'm going to do that thing, or I'm going to act this way. Or, right? Confession begins to make us whole again. Uh, there's a lot of Christians that have written on the concept of confession. One of my favorites is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German theologian, taught at a seminary, was a beast of a man. Uh, intelligent, smart. Uh, when Hitler started coming into power, he started speaking out about Hitler and Nazism. Uh, so much so that uh, when Hitler came into power, they went and silenced him. He wasn't allowed to speak publicly or write publicly. He had to flee to England, and then he was in the States for a while, and he could have stayed here because he was brilliant, well-loved, but he felt like God wanted him back in Germany to fight against the system that Hitler was creating. And so he actually went back and started, uh, joined in with a, a group of Germans who were spies, uh, who were actually trying to uh, take Hitler out, to, to get rid of the regime. He wound up uh, being hung in a concentration camp two days before, or three days before that camp was liberated. But Bonhoeffer was passionate about the church, passionate about community, and he wrote tons and tons of material about it. And in that writing, he often talked about the necessity, the need for confession. He says this, and I love it. Uh, there's going to be a quote on the screen in just a minute, but not quite yet. He says, in confession, there takes place a breakthrough to community. Sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them from the community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. Sin wants to remain unknown it shuns the light. Oh, how true is that? And then he said this. In confession, there occurs a breakthrough to new life. The break with the past is made when sin is hated, confessed, and forgiven. We experience our rescue and salvation. Everything has become new. I love that. I love that. The question often arises then, who am I supposed to confess to? It's a fair question. Not just a fair question, it's a really good question. Who am I supposed to confess to? Um, this is one of the reasons that I believe that community is vital for our lives. Uh, one of our other values is lone wolves die, right? A lot of times we, we think that like, oh man, I can handle stuff on my own, in fact, quite honestly, I'm weak if I can't handle stuff on my own, which is complete baloney because nobody can. You weren't designed to handle stuff on your own. Lone wolves die. Not only that, they die alone. So, 
Who, though, are we supposed to confess to? Well, community is, I think, the place that we probably ought to hopefully be able to start. But there has to be people, not only in our lives, that can care for us, challenge us, celebrate with us, that we can confess to, but we have to pay attention to who those folks should be. Uh, Richard Foster is another, uh, he's, he's alive, uh, brilliant guy who's passionate about spiritual formation, writes on it all the time, uh, highly respected, and he says this about who to confess to. Um, he, he says, uh, this one I think is kind of funny, he says, uh, there are many people who are disqualified because they would be horrified if you revealed your sin to them. <laughs> Don't go to that person, okay? Like, I'm just right there, right now. All right? And he said there's other people that if you went and shared your sin with them, they would just shrug it off and say, oh, not that big of a deal. He said those aren't the people to go to either. Okay? He said the key qualifications for who you want to confess to are spiritual maturity, Wisdom, I think it'll be up on the screen. Spiritual maturity, wisdom, compassion, good common sense, the ability to keep a confidence, and I love this part, and a wholesome sense of humor. (laughs) Many pastors, though by no means all, can serve in this way. Often, ordinary folk who hold no office or title whatsoever are among the best at receiving a confession. Now let me say this, though. No human being can forgive you. All right, can forgive your sin. Now, I'm not saying if you sin against somebody, there's not a place for you to go and confess to them and ask for the forgiveness. That kind of forgiveness, yes. But when it comes to the actual forgiveness of sin, the absolving you of their sin, no human being can do that, okay? So when I sin, and it happens way more often than I wish that it did, way more often than you probably think it does, I confess my sin to God. I go to him and I admit what I've done. I tell him how I've blown. It's not like he doesn't already know anyway. But I also have a guy that I go to and confess. Not every single thing and not every single detail. But my mentor, I've known him for the last 18 years, has been that guy. I've also had people in my small group that I trust, that are mature, that have good common sense, good sense of humor, that are loving Jesus that I can share my failings with. And when I do that, they don't absolve me of my sin, but what they do is they become a physical representation to remind me that I am the child of a God who not only loves me, but invites me into His throne room of grace. God said that His grace is always greater than our sin. So you got this much sin, God has this much grace. You got this much sin, God has this much grace. You got this much sin, God has this much grace. You can't ever out-sin His grace. Seventy times seven, it's an ocean. You can fall into it. Whenever you fall short, fall into that grace. I want to close uh, this morning uh, with a story It's a popular story, one that probably many of you have heard before, about the son who dissed his father. And he goes to his dad, who's fairly wealthy, and he says, Dad, uh, I want my portion of the inheritance. Well, that was a shocking thing for a Jewish kid to say to his Jewish father, because it was basically like telling the entire community that he wanted his dad dead. Dad, it would be better if you were not alive anymore. Can I have half of the inheritance? His dad says, fine. 
totally shaming his father in front of the entire community. But his dad does what he wants and says the son then left and went away to a far land. And said while he was there, he partied, man, lived it up. The life, right? Everything that he thought was going to bring him joy and happiness and excitement. The ladies, the booze, the drugs, the you name it, it was all his. He had the cars, he had everything until it all ran out, right? Because then nobody actually liked him, nobody actually cared about him. He lived high on the hog and then he didn't have nothing, so then he had to get a job feeding hogs. Literally, probably the worst thing that a Jewish man would want to do is have to then live among pigs. They were unclean, not just like dirty because they're that, but they were also unclean spiritually, and yet that's where he's at. And we pick up the text in Luke chapter 15 as Jesus tells the story in verse 17. And it says, when he came to his senses, when he woke up, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, And this is where we find one of the most beautiful confessions in all of Scripture. He says, Father, which is in that moment a recognition of who He is and who He's relating to. He says, I have sinned against you and against heaven. And He's recognizing not only who He has relationship with, but what He's done. That it hasn't only been against his father. It's also been against God himself, and he admits his wrong. And he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He not only admits his sin, but he also is contrite, right? He's also saying, God, I'll let you do. I just gave it away, but Father, I'll let you do whatever you need to do, whatever it takes, whatever it means. You can do it. I I, I deserve whatever, right? There's something that happens in that moment when we confess ourselves to another person. When we confess ourselves to God, we admit what we've done. We ask God to forgive us, but we say, God, whatever it means, I'm in your hands now. So so he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. This is crazy. This is crazy talk. A dignified Jewish man doesn't run anywhere. And how does he see his son a long way off? Only if he's looking for him. The son said to him, everything that he just rehearsed, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He can't even get the rest of it out. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. See, friends, confession. Confession is the process of humbling ourselves, recognizing who we are, admitting what we've done, and saying, God, I put myself, I place myself in your hands. And God, because he is a good father who loves his kids, 
offers forgiveness. He said 70 times 7. In other words, as many times as it takes. But the discipline of confession is still a necessity because it is the thing that wrecks and breaks, destroys and diminishes our pride so that we can experience grace. Grace Grace and mercy that brings redemption and restoration and salvation and freedom. Friends, that's what we want. You want to be healthy in 2019? Then we're going to pursue some disciplines. One of those is the discipline of confession. So I got three things for us to do as a church. Number one, number one is to journal. I would like it if you would just, I'm just saying, once a week, pick a day. Maybe it's Tuesdays. Tuesdays, you're going to spend 10 minutes journaling. I don't care how you do it. You want to do it on your computer. You want to write it out. I don't care how you do it. But journal a prayer to God. And in that, spend some time talking about praise, and then confess your sins, and then ask Him for the things that you need, and then thank Him for all the things that He's given you, if you want to remember that, PCAT. It's the best I could do, sorry. PCAT, I don't know, that's bad. But The second thing that we can do to pursue the discipline of confession is find someone, or even better yet, a small group of someones that are spiritually mature, wise, compassionate, able to keep a confidence and have a good sense of humor. Ideally, that's going to be folks in your small group. It may or may not be. Don't take it as a negative thing. Maybe somebody's already got that. Maybe it's going to be somebody in your life. But you need somebody that you can be real with, right? Because sin lives in the darkness, and it grows in the darkness. But when we get it out, it starts to die. And that's what we need, the discipline of confession. Now, this is the last way that we can do it, because the first place we need to go is to confess to God. And so we're going to sing a song right now. And I'm going to be down here confessing. Now, I already did it in the first service. I don't think I've sinned between that and now. <laughs> All right, but I'm going to be down here confessing. And I would like for you to join me. And it doesn't be because you, like, killed somebody last week, okay? If you did that, you should be down here. But, uh, that, like, it could be the small things in life. Like, God, I've, I've been trying to do things on my own lately. Or, or God, you know what, some of those thoughts that I've had or some of those uh, wishes that I've, that I've desired, God, uh, my anger, God, my impatience, God, my selfishness, like there's some things, God, that I just want to get out and give to you. Maybe for someone here today, today's the day that you want to come to Jesus. You've been kind of walking along, tiptoeing back and forth about whether or not this Jesus guy is real. And, and today's the day that you want to say, you know what, man, I, I, I'm, I'm the son and I'm running. Because let me tell you something, God's already looking for you. He's already looking for you. He's ready to run and throw his arms around you. If that's you and you need to come forward and, and do some work with Jesus today, awesome. But I want to see this whole front, just folks that are willing to say, you know what, I don't care about my pride, I don't care whether people think I'm weird because I walk forward in church. I'm going to come up here and I'm going to pray and I'm going to confess. And I'm going to begin to work on this discipline because I know that that's where I'm going to find health. You see, Jesus said that he came to give you life and life to the full. Life and life to the full. 
that starts with confession. So let's be that today. We're going to stand together and sing this song, one of my favorite songs. It's actually an old hymn. And if you want to come down front and sing it down front, stand here. You want to come down front and kneel and confess, you can do that. Let's go ahead and stand this to get, stand together and let's be a church that confesses, unafraid.